Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest edition of the Providence Journal's College Basketball Podcast. This is Bill Koch, sports writer for the Journal, in our downtown studios in Providence. Uh, I'm joined by my co-conspirator from WPRI 12 and Fox Providence, sports reporter and anchor, Maury Hirsch-Gordon. Maury, how are we living? Bill, living well. Welcome back. NFL season is over. I know I'm on every other week, so Super Bowl's in the rearview mirror. Sort of a a snoozer for all of us there, but college basketball is the sport now for the next six weeks. Picking Uh, up. It's a great time, isn't it? Middle of February through the first week in April. Uh, Fingers crossed still we can get conference tournaments in and NCAA tournaments in, but uh, hopefully we're we're getting there. It feels like we're getting there, and uh, still a lot to talk about, and a lot of the teams still in the thick of things, even if they're not in the best position they, they'd hope to be. I, I think it's pretty remarkable, honestly, that we've made it to this point, even. Uh, you know, with, with all the COVID pauses among teams and rescheduling of games and, you know, just sort of the, uh, the despair at times, I guess. You know, the frustration at times you feel from coaches, from players, uh, having their schedules changed, having their lives be so different from previous seasons. Uh, I salute everyone who is playing, everyone who is still playing, everyone who wanted to play in the first place, and I thank them because it's given us something to do, uh, which which has been great, um, you know. And that leads us to occasions that you would have missed out on if there wasn't a season, like Senior Night, which we saw in Kingston on Tuesday. Uh, we're recording this on Wednesday morning, and we are. A little more than 12 hours removed from what was a classic uh, between URI and Dayton, a a game that people will be talking about for a long time. Uh, The Rams battle and battle and battle until Dayton finally relented in the second overtime, 91-89 for URI. They send out Fats Russell, Jeremy Shepard, and Umberto Bruzadin with a victory. Uh, How unlikely was this, Maury? With 9.44 left in the second half, URI down 18. Our friends at KenPalm.com gave the Rams a 3.3% chance of winning. And I would have given them maybe less. Maybe less. Considering you're on a four-game losing streak uh, and the spot they were in, it, was, it would have been really easy to pack it up. You know, Pack it up, look, look ahead to some later competition. Uh, against the George Washington on Sunday that they now have, and then against the St. Joe's team, so two bottom sellers to end out your regular season. That wasn't the case, Bill. Uh, somehow, someway, Rhode Island scratched and they clawed, and with the help of, of some Dayton miscues as well, uh, had the perfect storm there late in the last 9.44 to come back and force overtime, go to double overtime, uh, and eventually win. The big theme for me out of this one is change. Change across the board in approach from David Cox up top. Um, and it helped in many different categories if you just look at it statistically on the box score. By sticking to primarily six players uh, and then adding in a few others. So he, he did go nine deep. Um, but by playing the most productive players the most amount of time on the court, it allowed confidence. It created a lot of chemistry on the floor despite shots not going. But the best thing was 
you had leadership out on the court, and you had guys who had been there. Um, so uh, a Fats Russell obviously comes to mind. A Jeremy Shepard, who's a senior, who's played well for stretches during this season. Uh, Mikkel Mitchell, Antoine Walker, your two best big men out on the court. And then Ish Leggett, who's turned into your you know top three guard on your team, who, who deserves the 40 minutes that he got. Super efficient, six of eight from the floor, some big time threes late. Um, and then the money stat is nine turnovers yes. in, in ninety minutes, in fifty minutes. Two turnovers combined from your starting backcourt in one hundred and twenty-nine minutes. I mean, that's just exceptional. Um, and when you have the confidence in your guys to keep them out on the floor to play through mistakes, it breeds confidence. Uh, and that's what we saw from the Rams. Uh, Jeremy Shepard, Fats Russell weren't going to go out with a loss. Fats said it himself in the post game. Yeah. Um, and this is the type of of performance uh, that Rhode Island has in their bag. Um, despite being down 18 and, and despite seemingly getting run off the court uh, in the middle of that second half, they, they still have the talent, and we've mentioned that all season, uh, to come back and to win games. Um, but David Cox admitted it. He said he needed to coach better. He needed to change his approach. Um, and, you know, and Alan Beatran, who's 0 for 3 from the court, doesn't probably get 12 minutes when you play 50 a couple weeks ago. He's probably a little bit higher. Um, Antoine Walker, who was so tremendous in that first half and only got nine minutes against UMass. To the other uh, Against Dayton, even though he was 3 for 11, Cox still played his best player, finishes with 10 and 10, and does things outside the box score. So um, I think just understanding, looking at the season from, from a, a – 30,000-foot perspective, understanding who your best players have been to date, uh, and just kind of putting all that together, as well as in-game production. Uh, he did his best job so far, and he, and he changed, and that was the best part. He committed to change finally for the first time uh, and, and channeled the right pieces on the court, uh, and then it paid off in a big way. Yeah, in the overtimes, Russell, Shepard, Leggett all played the full 10 minutes, the two five-minute periods in overtime. Seven minutes for Malik Martin, six for Mikel Mitchell, six for Antoine Walker, two for Jermaine Harris. So essentially going with six guys throughout the two overtime periods. Uh, you mentioned the turnovers, Maury. It was their best game of the season in that regard. Nine on 89 possessions, 10% of possessions. Their lowest total this season. Uh, they've only played five games better under David Cox in his three years in Kingston in terms of turnover percentage. Um, you know, So when you do that... A few other things show up in the box score. They had zero fast break points against St. Louis. They only forced four St. Louis turnovers. A lot of times those turnovers end up in live ball runouts and, and you score on the break. They had 22 fast break points against Dayton in that game. Um, you know, you look at the scoring off turnovers, 20 to 12 in URI's favor. Um, you know, and, and those were, I guess those were some of the things that I looked at against St. Louis. And I, I felt like that, URI was a team that was sort of incapable of imposing their will on the game in any way. They couldn't force tempo. They couldn't force any kind of pace. Defensively, they weren't threatening in any way. They played good, solid positional defense. St. Louis did not shoot a good percentage. But St. Louis committed four turnovers in the game. They weren't threatened. You know, they weren't edgy. They weren't nervous with the ball. They were allowed to run their half-court offense without their point guard, Yuri Collins, who got hurt early in that game. Um, they were allowed to get a little comfortable by URI. I don't think Dayton was ever really completely comfortable in that game. Not in that way uh, last night. You know, yes, you're up 18 in the middle of the second half. It, it's easy at that point. You're cruising along. 
Um, but some of the things that happened down the stretch and, and in the overtimes reminds you that Dayton had a lot of minutes from freshmen in that game. Uh, Jalen Crutcher didn't have his best night. Uh, I mean, I think he would admit to you. He had 22 points, but he's 7 for 18 from the field, 0 for 4 from 3. They did a reasonably good job on him. Elijah Weaver did not score. Mustafa Amzil had six points. Uh, Jordy Shimanga had five and six rebounds. So they did a pretty good job against the majority of Dayton's starting five. Uh, really, Zemi Wokeji shows up and has 29 points. You don't expect that. But for the most part, if you look at it over the course of 50 minutes, you or I did most of the things that they needed to do to win this game. They protected the ball. They played pretty good defense at times when they needed to. They were relatively opportunistic on offense. Um, and, and when it came down to not cutting time in the second half, when you needed to make the comeback, you had Fats Russell making some big plays. You had Ishleggett making three-pointers. Um, you know They did go to their strengths. I, I know this was something that, that you were imploring them to do. Uh, you wrote a piece on WPRI.com uh, that dropped – the last week? Yeah, we could go Tuesday. Before? Yep, one week ago. Um, you know, it was basically a look at, at minutes allocation and, and roles and you know, just ways that, that you felt like you or I could be managing its season differently in that regard. Um, you know, I thought you raised several points, obviously, and, and, and did your research to, to do that. Um, you know, I, I certainly look at their rotation. Um, you know, I, I look at the guys who are out there in the overtime. I certainly think that if you're going to ride or die with a certain group on this team, it's Russell, Shepard, Leggett, Mitchell, and Walker. Those are certainly the five best guys that they have right now. If you're going to mix in Malik Martin, who was a plus 15 in 23 minutes against Dayton, that's a very nice contribution to have. Um, you know, Jermaine Harris is sort of playing as the extra big guy um, you know, because you, you needed a little bit of size against Shimanga before he fouled out, uh, you know, maybe against Domziel on the boards. Um, you know, you need to clean up at that end. And, and, and you or I held their own uh, at that end. They out-rebounded Dayton. Um, you know, but it, it certainly it took them a long time to settle on who they should play when. Uh, there might have been a little bit too much democracy going on there and, and maybe not enough meritocracy. <laughs> um, you know, through the first 20 games or, or so. Um, you know, the team that we saw against Dayton, the, the effort that they gave, uh, it says a lot about who they are as people. And, and I think that that's, that's you know, in addition to the result, that's, that's certainly part of why they're not going to be forgetting that one anytime soon. No, for sure. And, and people, people will remember this for, for a long time. And uh, you think back a couple of years ago when they – Finished the 18-19 season off strong uh, with, with a bunch of wins in a row to get to the league semifinals. Yeah, They had a, a similar win like this, but it was on the road at Dayton uh, in, in overtime. That's right. Uh, I don't know if that was the win that started the streak, but it, it came early on in that streak. It, where, was, it was in the midst of it. Where, yeah. where, where Rhode Island really started to believe. They had a couple wins prior to that. Um, and then that one really kind of put them over the hump. And, and Cox was first to admit. He said, hey, there's no real momentum going on here. Uh, you know, because they just won one game and they had gone a month straight with losses. Um, so they, they feel like they broke the ice and they've found a new way uh, to, to, use their, to use their talent and, and, and to channel uh, the right guys on the floor. But this is the type of win 
at least the playing style, the right players out on the court, um, the way they took care of the ball, the way they they were on the floor making plays for 50-50 balls that could get the ball rolling a little bit. And when you have two teams that are below you in the standings, um, you can't let up, but you have to build on this. And it, there's two teams below you in the standings give you an opportunity uh, to pick up a couple wins before an Atlantic 10 tournament. And we've talked about it here, uh, and I'm sure we, you, you know this, and we've talked about it other places. There's not a runaway best team in the Atlantic 10 this year. There, there's not a Dayton... Uh, there's not a, a team that's a top 10, top 15 team in the country. Are St. Louis and St. Bonaventure and potentially VCU in a class of their own, potentially Richmond as well? They are, but they're not unbeatable. No. And with a healthy Fats Russell, if Rhode Island plays their best game, they can hang with any team in the conference. They haven't gotten blown out um, despite blowing a big lead uh, during during certain stretches of, of games. They show that they can play with anybody, so... Whether they can put together three games in a row or four games in a row, we'll have to see if that can if that can happen. Um, but this is a team that, that can at least compete, and you know you have a, a fighter's chance going into an Atlantic 10 tournament now with this different change of approach. No, a lot of times they've been their own worst enemy because they haven't been able to take care of the ball. Uh, you know, and I certainly think that that's been a common theme throughout the season. Uh, you know, this is this has been a high turnover team throughout most of the year. Um, team that hasn't always made the best decisions in terms of shot selection. Uh, you know, I, I just think that, you know, those are symptoms of, of teams that, you know, I won't say that they're not dialed in all the time. I, I don't think that's fair to say. Um, you know, I, I won't say that, you know, they're, they're deficient in some way in basketball IQ. I, 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 don't, I don't really believe in making those blanket statements. They, they've shown at times that they can be very capable. It just hasn't been consistent enough. Um, you know, and, and over the course of 22 games, that's how you end up at 10 and 12 with wins over Seton Hall on the road at VCU, home to St. Bonaventure, uh, and you end up with some losses that, that are just, you know, just mind-blowing. Uh, you know, UMass at home without two starters, uh, at Duquesne when you have a lead in the second half, um, you know, things like that at, uh, against BC very early in the year. Uh, you know, so those are... That's, that's, uh, that goes back to Bill Parcells when he said, you are what your record says you are. This is exactly who they are. They're, they're sort of in the middle. They can do great things. They can do some things that will leave you scratching your head. Um, you know, and one of those great things came out on Tuesday night. Uh, Maury, let's, let's just take a look at URI seniors because it does look like, you know, barring any rescheduling of games down the stretch, that is going to be the last time they play in the Ryan Center. Uh, you know, you or I put it out in their game notes, uh, their official game notes released before the game, that it would be the final appearance for Fats Russell and, and Jeremy Shepard uh, at the Ryan Center. Uh, it appears as though they will not exercise uh, the NCAA's blanket waiver uh, that would give them an, an extra season in accordance with the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, you know, and if that's the case, you're, you're looking at URI. Graduating its two leading scorers, uh, its two best guards. Um, you know, Shepard obviously is just here for one year on the floor. Uh, last year he, he sat out uh, as a transfer. Um, you know, was not a qualifier academically. He has been a very good player for them this season. Uh, but, you know, as I wrote leading up to the game, the, the spotlight on senior night belongs to Fats Russell, uh, who is now the all-time steals leader at URI. Uh, he passed Keith Cothran, who was a great player uh, in the late 
20 O's and, and early 2010s, uh, was on an NIT semifinal team. Um, he passed Jiggy Williamson uh, for 16th in scoring all-time. Jiggy Williamson was a starting point guard on the 1978 NCAA team at URI. Um, you know, very good player. Played with Sly Williams and, and some of the program's greats uh, at that point. He's going to finish top 10 all-time in three-pointers made, assists, free throws made, free throw percentage. Uh, you look at what he's won you know, in his trophy case. District 1 Player of the Year from the USBWA. Uh, District 4 Player of the Year from the NABC. Uh, he's been an all-conference player in the A-10, an all-defensive team player in the A-10. Uh, was part of an A-10 regular season champion uh, at URI, was part of an NCAA win at URI. If you just look at the list of accomplishments, there are things on his resume that, that fans would nitpick, certainly, shooting percentage, um, chief among them. Uh, but I look at Fats, and, and I just think that, you know, Fats's career for me was a string of indelible moments whether it's his freshman breakout against Providence or stripping Trey Young or scoring 41 at St. Joe's and, and leading Sports Center, uh, being 5-0 and in Philadelphia on the road you know URI traditionally has really struggled at Hagen Arena uh, you know going to Hawk Hill has never been a good trip for them um, but with that guy on your team you have a chance uh, they're 11-1 and all time against LaSalle and St. Joe's with Fats Russell on your team. Um, I don't think it's a coincidence that, that he did some of his best work against those folks going back home uh, with so many family members in the stands. I, I think if you look at someone who would rise to an occasion in terms of a big crowd, uh, a hostile crowd on the road, um, I don't know if I've seen too many people at URI feed off surroundings like like he did and and I think that's what I'm going to take away from his career um how much he clearly enjoyed the stage and just the electrifying moments at times that he was capable of producing he is in a class of his own when it comes to Point guards in that spot, combo guards that can do both. There's guys that have been able to dish the rock better, guys that have shot the ball better. But when you combine all of those assets and all, and all of those things in his game and, and together, that's what makes Fats so special. Um, and, and I've been pretty outspoken about it on social media, on Twitter. Um, fans just get caught up in the moment, and that's understandable. You know, you get caught up in a season where you're two games under 500 and and where Fats Russell is shooting in the low 30% uh, from the floor. He's at 32.6% after, after last night's win against Dayton. Four of 17. You don't really want to score 20 points uh, and, need tw- and need 17 shots to get there. Right. Um, but it's just the intangibles he brings. He brings a confidence. He brings a swagger. And then that rubs off on the program. That rubs off on your coaches. You can go to war saying, hey, we have our alpha dog. We know we have a chance to win every night. Uh, and that was the case last night. I mean, down 18 points with 9.44, like we mentioned off the top, it would have been so easy, so easy to just say, hey, forget it. You know, we've lost four straight. The season's sort of spiraling out of control here. We're 10th in the A-10 at that point. I mean, right. we, that's not even, that's a whole other conversation. Rhode Island was fighting just to get out of the play-in round, which 
now it looks like they might be able to, even though they're they're tied for tenth, uh, percentage-wise points. But you, you have a guy like this, you can't you can't overstate the impact and the intangibles he has, uh, the the impact outside of the box score. Wipe the numbers away when you go to draft a team, the top four or five teams all time in Rhode Island basketball history. He's there, and and the first Division One season was in 1903-04. There's been 116 seasons of Rhode Island basketball. Uh, this, there's been great runs. There's been great teams. There's been great moments. But this, the program is not steeped in rich tradition like other New England, Mid-Atlantic, Northeast teams have for long, sustained periods of time. Um, and, and when you look at a guy like Fats Russell, what he was able to help you accomplish, uh, didn't do it alone. Nobody ever said he did it by himself. No. Um, but he was a major, major part uh, in taking the 17-18 team to the next level, adding depth, adding a guy off the bench that was reliable, a great scorer, a great defender, something that this team doesn't have right now, you right. know, if you, look, if you look four years later. So um, just his mark that he left on Rhode Island, he could have transferred anywhere. He could have worn another jersey. He could have said, let me go make six figures overseas this year. Let, why, why should I come back during a pandemic and play in front of exactly zero people night in and night out? Why should I even continue to play when David Cox has said he's about 75 or 80%? Right. The, the things he's done for the program, you, j- j- just cherish him the last three or four or five or six games, however many he has left in Keeney Blue, because it takes a little time to appreciate a guy like this who, who is so hot and cold and, and whose numbers aren't the best. Uh, but you, you, you go two or three years down the line, and you're going to wish Fats Russell was back on your program. And, and there's a lot of p- people in the fan base out there that, that are appreciative of his efforts. Uh, and it's been a joy to cover him from our perspective. Um, but it's just, it's just easy to get caught up in, 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 some, of the, in some of the lows and some of the, the, the poor shooting performances and some of the questionable decisions. But every player has that. No player is perfect. Uh, and Fats is up there with some of the all-time greats. No, he's uh, he he is unique. Uh, I think you hit on that word, and I think that's exactly what he is. Uh, you know, you you hate to go back to something as, as simple as his size, but you know, you look at a guy who who's on the roster at either five ten or five eleven. Those are both lies. He he might be five eight on a tall day. Um, you know, but just this little guy out there against all these monsters, and he's cutting around them and between them and and through them, and you know. Going to the rim and throwing his body on the ground, um, you know, completely fearless from day one, uh, from the time he was a freshman, trash talking people like Jared Terrell in practice. Even as a reporter, I'm not going to walk up to Jared. Jared and I had a, a good relationship. I'm not going to walk up to Jared and trash talk him. Jared Terrell's an intimidating guy. You watch him play on the floor. That is an alpha dog. NBA capital player. A, capital D. Yeah. I mean, really, you know, that, that is one of the most, he is one of the most imposing figures in, in recent URI basketball history. It was clear that he was the guy. Uh, and Fats Russell is, is teasing him and tormenting him and prodding him a little bit in, in practice from day one. Uh, and I think it was, you know, Jared sort of looked at him as like his annoying little brother, uh, you know, by midway through that season, but he couldn't help but love him. Uh, you know, you, you think back to one of the highlights in the Providence game his freshman year. There's a steal and a run out. Russell dunks it. And Terrell is the first guy coming up from behind him. He's got a big smile on his face. 
and he shoves him in the back of the head toward the student section, and it, you could just see how proud he was that here's his little brother out there doing it to the friars. Uh, you know, couldn't couldn't have been more pleased that he was out there doing to the friars what he probably did to Terrell and E.C. Matthews and Jarvis Garrett every single day in practice. <laughs> and Terrell's looking at him thinking, finally, he's doing it to somebody else. Thank goodness. Um, you know, he is a very unique player, uh, someone who will be successful uh, professionally for a long time. Uh, you know, and that's that goes into decision-making. Uh, it is a, a business uh, consideration for, for him and Jeremy Shepard to leave now, I, I think. Uh, Fats will be 23 in May. Jeremy will be 24 in July. Uh, you have to consider that right now, as we sit here, Jason Tatum is 22 years old. He turns 23 on March 3rd. This is his fourth year in the NBA, his fourth year making real cash. I'm not directly comparing Fats Russell and Jeremy Shepard to Jason Tatum. Everyone just calm down. I'm not doing that. What I am saying is that your professional basketball career, the window to have that career, is a lot more narrow than coming back for an extra year and getting an advanced degree. You can do that when you're 35, when you're 40, when you're 45. These are your prime physical earning years if you are a professional athlete. You need to capitalize on them. I understand that you know fans want the two of them to come back and look how good we could be next year and look, they could get a degree now and they're missing out on an opportunity. I get all that. I understand that. I get that side of the argument. If you want to be a professional athlete, which is what just about all these guys want to be in Division One, they want to be professional basketball players, your time to do that is limited. Uh, and you need to capitalize when you have the chance. And they will both have a chance. Uh, if, if not in the G League or in the NBA, certainly overseas, they will both find a home, um, most likely multiple homes, over the next 8 to 10 years, uh, stamp their passport all over the place, live tax-free uh, in places like you know, Italy, Spain, Greece, Turkey, France. Um, it's not a bad life. Jerseys and windowsills. Signing autographs at big outings. Thousands of people love basketball worldwide. I mean, people come out to watch these players. It's a different life. It is. It's not a bad life. No, not uh, at all. You know, and it, it's certainly one that that guys have gotten used to. You look at that first team that Fats played on. I think they have. I think they had eight pros, eight future pros on that 2018 NCAA team. Um, you know, I was trying to count it up the other day. Uh, you know, and he will be the latest. I think he will make it nine. Um, so you're looking at Rhodey. They, they play Sunday, a rescheduled game at George Washington. That's 11.30 a.m. on NBC Sports Network for folks who would like to laze in front of the TV, maybe have a little brunch and, and catch that one. Uh, I'll be doing the same. Uh, and I would say that that could be fun. Uh, who doesn't like a little more basketball? Exactly. A little rescheduled game. Let's exactly. have it. Um, we go to the Friars. Uh, they also played on Tuesday night a, a game of more substance in terms of the NCAA tournament, uh, a game that Providence really needed to have, uh, and one that changed You know, probably about two hours before the tip when we found out that James Booknight was going to be available for UConn. Uh, for folks who watched the 40 minutes from Gamble Pavilion, you saw how important it was that James Booknight was available in this game. 73-61 UConn win. Uh, a completely different game from six days ago when Providence mugged the Huskies uh, at Alumni Hall at home. Uh, Maury, I, I, I'm looking at this UConn team with Booknight after missing eight games with an elbow injury. 
he comes back, checks in you know, about five minutes into the first half, and we were texting before the tip, and you asked me for predictions last night. I predicted a URI win. Wasn't certain about it. <laughs> Didn't look good for a long time. <laughs> Same Ultimately here. got the right result. Yeah, we were both 2-0. Uh, Providence, I felt like book night coming back would give UConn a huge lift just from a confidence perspective. What I did not think was that he would play this well right out of the blocks. 18 points, he matched team high honors, he's 7 for 13 from the field, two turnovers in 24 minutes. Some of the things that he does athletically, you can see why he's a projected lottery pick. Uh, Ed Cooley said at postgame, this is a completely different team than the one we played six days ago. Uh, and, and unfortunately for the Friars, this was a game that they desperately needed. Uh, you know, Now, in terms of March Madness, Maury, I, I would say that anything short of winning out to the Big East Finals from here won't be enough for an at-large bid, and even that might have them falling short. This, this was a really damaging loss for Providence. It was, but, but when you go into it, Bill, it wasn't like, like we had said. It wasn't a game you expected the Friars to win knowing Book Knight was coming back, and, and UConn had just won on the road at Xavier without him uh, and had played okay uh, for, for certain portions of the eight games that Book Knight was out. They were 4-4, four and four, so it's not like they totally hit rock bottom without him. Sure, They have the secondary pieces. Uh, they have a secondary score. They have a third score. Uh, in Tyrese Martin, in R.J. Cole, potentially in a, in a Tyler Polly if he can get it going, uh, and an emerging big young big man uh, who is highly touted in, in Adama Sinogo. So they have the pieces around. They just were missing their star. And when you put the star on the court, not only does the attention go to him, uh, and then he actually does the scoring and is, and is efficient, 7 of 13 from the floor, effortless, plays in transition, um, attacks the offensive rebound with a vengeance. I mean, this guy really is, is special, and he's the real deal. And, and if you're a Connecticut fan or, or if you're just a fan of the Big East, you want to see a team like UConn in the NCAA tournament. Um, and it looks like they should be on their way. They still have a few more wins to, to tie up. When you look at it for Providence, though, I mean, there were lapses during this game, Bill, that, that weren't great mentally. Um, you know, whether it's a bad second foul by Nate Watson early on on sort of a poor – Poor attempt at a, at a box out. He was lazy and, and got beat underneath. Just give up an offensive rebound or just fight for the ball over top and don't make contact. You're, I think it was already UConn was on that 11-0 run early after Watson had the first four, and he picked up a second foul before the under 16. Or a couple other examples come to mind, both, both point guards, uh, Alan Breed and Jared Bynum, letting R.J. Cole just go left easy. And that's his dominant hand. Yeah. So whether it was wasn't paying attention to the scouting report, having lapses in judgment um, on the court, offensively and defensively, the Friars just didn't really have a great a great start. Um, and then once UConn got out got out in front, they really just kind of put this game on ice uh, and and let and did what they needed to do. Uh, it's it's tough for Providence uh, to see them go like this. Uh, was encouraged by Jared Bynum's 14 minutes. Was a little bit more than he got at the Paul. Two of two from the floor. Controlled some tempo. Controlled some pace. Mm-hmm. Uh, two assists there, and 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 made some plays attacking to the rim. But you know when David Duke struggles, like he's been struggling now for the better part of a month and a half, he's had some highlights. Uh, but he's he's struggled for the large majority of it. You talk about shooting numbers with Fats. David Duke's shooting numbers were super efficient for the first 
20, uh, what if they played 22, so about 15 games of the season. Right. The last seven have not been efficient. Uh, and when he's not efficient and when Nate Watson has one basket after the first opening two or three possessions, he had the first four points and then had one basket, two points the rest of the game, just not a recipe for success. They don't, they did, they don't really have a backup big man to take the place of Watson. Uh, and they don't have a lot of depth. Ed Croswell only plays nine minutes off the bench. Jared Bynum still hurt and plays 14. And Greg Gant plays 25. But when you look at UConn, uh, and, and Ed Cooley said this post game last night, he thinks they're the deepest team in the Big East. Uh, and I believe that because you, you look at the starting five, you brought Booknight off the bench. So even if Booknight replaces a starter, you're still going to bring a starter off the bench when Booknight goes back into the starting role. Right. Jalen Gaffney, solid point guard. Josh Carlton who had, didn't play the previous game, comes out and in 10 minutes has seven points and seven rebounds. And if and he had, yeah, four offensive rebounds. It felt like he was on the offensive glass every time, and it was right away. He comes out on the floor, plays well. Why? Because he's a senior. Tyler Polly, senior. So when you have pieces like R.J. Cole, Tyler Polly, Josh Carlton, the floor opens up. They have a chance to make plays when Tyrese Martin and when James Booknight are at their best. And, and this UConn team is deep. Uh, and if they can stay healthy, and if there are no no more COVID pauses, they have enough games now to get on track to play top competition uh, and to really start to play well. And it's just unfortunately the um, it's just what what the Big East is going to be now uh, with UConn in the league um, for seven years. PC made made a habit of you know being fourth or fifth in the Big East, popping at third. But with the Huskies back in tow, like we were talking. Yesterday, you know, this could be Dan Hurley's worst team in the next five or ten years. It looks like the upward trajectory is there yeah. in terms of recruiting, in terms of in terms of developing talent. Uh, so, if he continues to build, and next year is better than this year, and the year after is better than next year, this UConn team will shouldn't be lower than third uh, in the Big East. So, between Villanova and UConn and Creighton, uh, it's it's a stacked Big East now, and, and Providence has the work cut out for them. Uh, in order to to try to remain competitive and and a, sort of near the top of the league. Now, uh, UConn is a major problem going forward. There, there's no question. I, I think just about anyone in the Big East would have acknowledged that when they brought them back into the conference. Um, what Booknight does is he changes their ceiling. Um, you know, this is a good team, a, a capable team, a representative team. Without him, uh, with him, they're a team that could do damage. Uh, and and I don't just mean in the Big East tournament. Uh, I I can't imagine that. If UConn was to get into the NCAA field, and, and right now they're among the last teams in, according to Joe Lunardi and, and Bracketology, if UConn was to say, you know, scrape into the field as a 10 seed, you're playing a 7-10 game first, I, I don't know what the Vegas line would be. It's, it's most likely a coin flip of some kind. I can't imagine that there are many two seeds out there who would be thrilled about playing against a team that has a definite pro, uh, has some veterans, defends like this, has depth in their front court, and is this athletic with guys like Booknight and Andre Jackson. And a coach who's been there. And a coach and done who's it. been there and, and done it in Dan Hurley. Yeah. Uh, a team that will defend, who will get up into your face, who will make it uncomfortable for you. Um, you know, you can sort of see they're similar, I think, to your eyes first NCAA team in 2017 that, that Danny had. They were, you know, a good team for the first 15, 20 games. Had a really bad loss to Fordham, and then from there won nine games in a row, went through the A-10 tournament, ended up losing to Oregon with a Sweet 16 berth on the line. 
this UConn team could profile the same. I, I could see them going on a run here at the end of the season. I know they have a big showdown game with Villanova this weekend, um, and that's one that I'm sure that Dan has had circled on the calendar for a long time, um, You know, just in terms of when they played Villanova uh, in a non-conference game. Played them close, and, and, and Dan essentially said after the game, you know, get us now. Because if you wait two or three years, you might not be able to. Um, you know, Providence in, in this one, uh, I look at some of the areas that, that they were successful in in the first win. Uh, UConn was 4 for 20 from 3 in that game. Providence out-rebounded them. Providence had more turnovers than assists. What happened on Tuesday? UConn was 5 for 12 from 3. Modest, but an improvement. They won on the glass, and Providence had fewer assists than turnovers. You, you just look at those three areas of the game. Those are huge, glaring spots. Uh, you know, Based on what Providence's blueprint has been over the years under Ed Cooley, their previous NCAA teams uh, have run people off the three-point line pretty consistently. They've taken pretty good care of the ball for the most part. They've had good point guard play. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and they have been competitive on the glass. They've been edgy. They've been physical. Um, you know, it, it was difficult for them against UConn. I, I, I think that had a lot to do with UConn's personnel and, and maybe not as much to do uh, with Providence's effort. Um, you know, it was good to see Ed back. Uh, he missed the Saturday game at DePaul due to about a food poisoning. That was a win by the Friars, 57-47. They really got down in the mud for Jeff Battle, who, who slid over one chair. Um, played really good defense. Uh, they were very determined. Uh, but you were going to need a little more uh, against a team like the Huskies. They are not in the class of, of DePaul. They are several steps above. Um, you know, and, and I would think at, at this point, at this point in the year, um, and, and I think you know, Providence knows that, or knew going in, that, that it was going to take a pretty good effort, especially with Book Knight back in the lineup. Uh, so where does this leave the Friars? They are 82 in the net. As we sit here this morning, they are 2-6 and six against Quadrant 1 opponents. They have two of those left at St. John's and Villanova home. So by the end of the regular season, you are going to be sub-500 against Quadrant 1. Uh, the best your overall record is going to be is 14-11. and 11. That means if you win out, could be 15-11 and 11 if you reschedule Georgetown. But that, that's a game that really doesn't do you a lot of benefit. You just have to win it. Um, you know, you've got Xavier at home on the 24th. They're going to have a little time off until next Wednesday. Uh, then you go to St. John's and you have Villanova at home. Even if they win those three games, Maury, there, there is no guarantee that they would be in the field of 68. Uh, you would have to do something at Madison Square Garden, most likely getting to the Big East Finals. Uh, you know, you would think uh, that the auto bid is probably their only salvation at this point. Um, and it is surprising in a way, I think, you know, when you look back and you consider who Providence was before Ed got here, uh, the 10 seasons before he became the coach, I think Providence made the NCAA tournament twice. Um, you know, they made it five times with him and, and you know, his next one, uh, would make him the all time leader at the school in terms of NCAA births, uh, you know, his sixth. And, and really you could say that last year he would have had six, uh, you know, because, that Friars team before the pandemic shut down everything was going to march. Uh, that that was going to happen, um, you know. So this is sort of unfamiliar territory for for Providence. Um, you know, I won't say playing out the string because these games still matter. But you know, maybe knowing that short of winning the Big East tournament, you're not going to play for March. And and I'm interested to see 
how they respond when they come back from this week-long break. Yeah, they've shown that they've they've made improvements during their breaks prior uh, to this now new long week break uh, in this season. Uh, and, and Ed has mentioned that he's shortened practices, he's increased intensity, he's seen improvement during week-long breaks before uh, in this year. But there's a window now for Providence. When you look at it, you play Xavier and St. John's, two teams right above you in the standing. So there's a window there if you can put a couple a couple wins together to to creep up to fifth in the Big East, um, which would be res- which would be respectable uh, for for a season that that Providence has had and through all the struggles of of COVID and scheduling changes that they've had. Um, but then on the flip side, it's well if you don't get your act together, Butler's a half a game behind you, who you split with. You you right now have lost the only game against Georgetown, who's only a half game behind you. So uh, similar to Rhode Island, Providence is fighting to get out of that play-in round uh, of the big of the Big East tournament, which is the bottom six teams, I believe, this year, due to the, due to the addition of UConn with eleven. Okay, uh, they would go the bottom six, and then that brings three winners, and then three play the top five, which is eight, which is your quarterfinal, semifinal championship. So, uh, okay. Providence has a chance to to get out of that first <clears throat> round, um, to to get to about five hundred in Big East play. But if you don't, you're going to face a hungry Xavier team who's coming off a loss and and who's right there on the NCAA bubble. So they need the game just as much as Providence, if not more. St. John's is coming off of a win. Uh, over Xavier, they're right on the NCAA bubble at 14 and 8 and 8 and 7 overall. So, as much as you're playing games against teams you have a chance to win, they still have a little bit more to play for in terms of at-large berth. Yeah, St. John's uh, has played really well. They've won seven of their last eight. Uh, their latest was against Xavier on Tuesday night. Uh, that was the second half of the Fox Sports One doubleheader. That was after Providence and, and UConn. Uh, St. John's only loss in that stretch was overtime at Butler. Uh, you know which. Seems odd, but you look at the Big East standings and, and you consider that, you know, aside from really Villanova, uh, you know, most of these teams do have a, an odd loss or two in there. Um, you know, I, I look at the Friars and I, I think, you know, Ed alluded to it after the game. Um, you know, he said that Providence most likely has gotten to this point because of the opportunities that they've missed earlier in the season. And, and I think he's right. And I go back to. You know, the Creighton game at home where you lose it on a dunk at the buzzer, the Xavier game on the road where you lose it on a three-pointer at the buzzer. You win those two games, you're 13-9, and nine, you're 9-7 nine and seven in the league, and you've got two more Quadrant 1 wins. Um, you know, and most likely, as we sit here today, you're in the back end of the NCAA field. I, I think that that would probably be enough. You'd be 4-4 four and four against Quadrant 1. Your, your metrics would be a lot better from a net perspective. Um, you know, I, I, I think... You take those two games, you take out the Georgetown loss, which which was a really tough one. Uh, you can have one bad loss, you know. And 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 when I say bad, they don't they don't have any in in quadrant three or quadrant four, um, you know. But a bad loss in my mind, a game that you know you should have uh, against a team who you are better than Georgetown, Providence is certainly better than Georgetown. Um, to have a 15-point lead in the first half, Georgetown coming off COVID pause, and, and you lose the game at the end. Um, that's a really tough one to have. If you only had one of those games, that's okay. But they also lost at Butler uh, on, on a night where they just did not play well, uh, you know, did not give themselves a chance in that game. Uh, you know, Most of the other ones are excusable. You lose at UConn, okay, 
UConn's a good team. You lose at Marquette, who knows? You catch the good Marquette on one night, the bad Marquette on another night. That could go either way. Uh, you lose at Villanova, there's no shame in that. Um, you know, losing at home to Seton Hall, yes, it was ugly, but let's make it a 75-74 game where you feel better about how you played. It's still a loss to Seton Hall. It's not the worst thing in the world. Seton Hall's a good team. Um, you know, but I think Ed's point is well taken. If you have a couple games that you could flip earlier in the season, in particular Creighton and Xavier in that stretch where they lost three in a row, um, this would be a much different calculus as we sit here right now on February 17th. Providence, I think, would, would still be trending towards an NCAA bid at large. At the very least, the, the, the door would be open much wider. Uh, and, and right now, as we sit here, I think it's just about closed. Yeah, there's a thin there's a thin margin for error for this Providence team. They need David Duke and Nate Watson to combine for about 40 points, which is right around their season average. They need a third scorer, like we know, whether it's Nate Horkler or whether it's A.J. Reeves. Uh, and then they need some solid play, some some solid backup play from an Allen Breed, from a Greg Gant, from a, an Ed Crosswell. They really need all the pieces to, to have solid games. Uh, they need to defend well, something they've struggled with this year. So uh, there's just b- between losing a Jimmy Nichols, which is a depth piece, uh, not a huge, huge loss, but just in terms of another experienced body on the floor, mm-hmm. um, just haven't, haven't won the games, a few games that they needed to. And last year they dug themselves such a big hole in the out-of-conference that they needed to rip off six straight at the end of the year, win a bunch of games against top 25 teams. This year, the out-of-conference was okay. You go on the road, you beat a Big 12 team in TCU. Nothing great, but a solid win. Uh, you, you pick up a win in Maui, um, despite you know two kind of lopsided losses against Indiana and now what is now a top 10 Alabama team. Right. Um, and then you take care of Fairleigh Dickinson and Fairfield, so 3-2 and two is passable. Uh, you would have liked four and one, but but three and two is okay. You go into the Big East, and then yeah, you just have to win the games you're supposed to and split against the upper teams. And this year they've lost a couple more games against those bottom middle tier teams than they had last year. That's right. That's right. And and you know you look at just the the overall number of of chances you're going to have. Uh, I mean Providence was pushing you know fifteen. What they play fifteen, sixteen quadrant one games last year. I, I mean you're not going to approach that. This season, you're just not going to have the chance. Uh, you know, you're, you're looking at last season where you've played you know that many games. Even if you go 500 against those elite opponents, the selection committee is still going to look and say, "Wow, Providence has eight quadrant one wins." You know, let's put them in the field, uh, even though they had some bad losses to uh, you know when they were out in California early in the season at the Wooden Legacy. Uh, you know, you're, you're just you're just not going to have that in a shortened pandemic season. You're, you're not going to have that sort of margin for error. And, and so Providence goes into a week-long bye here, barring anything rescheduled, um, you know, sort of looking for form, uh, you know, looking for some sort of adjustment that they can make, uh, you know, maybe some sort of rotation that they can find uh, that will bring them into the last three games and bring them into Madison Square Garden next month. Um, we hope that uh, the same thing is going on in Smithfield. We're, we're not necessarily certain when we might see the Bryant Bulldogs next. We know on the schedule that they are they are slated to play Saturday and Sunday home and home with Merrimack. Uh, whether or not Bryant ends its COVID pause over the next couple days is going to determine whether or not those games go off. Uh, they will both tip at 4 o'clock on Saturday 
and on Sunday. Uh, Maury, obviously, you know, Bryant going on pause, uh, there's never really a good time for it, but this was certainly inopportune. Uh, being in February, uh, being at the business end of the season, uh, Bryant has not played since January 31st. That was against Fairleigh Dickinson. They were swept in New Jersey on that weekend. Uh, the first game should have won. Uh, gave it away down the stretch. Second game, Fairleigh Dickinson just beat them in the second half. Uh, you know, and now, you know, if Bryant is able to come back to action, they face a very uncertain top of the Northeast Conference. Um, you know, they have they are one of three, four lost teams remaining. Merrimack is another of those. Merrimack is eight and four. They currently lead the league. Wagner seven and four. Bryant six and four. Uh, Mount St. Mary's and Sacred Heart are both half a game behind the Bulldogs in the loss column. Significant because only the top four teams make the NEC tournament this year. You essentially go right to the semifinals uh, and then would need to win two games to secure an automatic bid to the NCAA tournament. Um, you know, Maury, we, we wonder whether or not they're going to be able to get out on the floor. Uh, we certainly hope that, that everyone in Smithfield is, is feeling okay, um, you know, and, and, and recovering, uh, and perhaps they'll return some negative tests either today or, or tomorrow, um, you know, and be, be a full go. Uh, but, you know, Bryant's going to be coming back to a, a very different landscape than, than the one that they exited, uh, you know, and it doesn't seem that long ago that they were on pause, but a lot of things have happened in the NEC since they, uh, since they went out. They're catching the hottest team in the conference this week if they can play them at home uh, in Merrimack at 8-4, and four, right now atop the league. The reigning regular season champs, yeah, uh, Joey Gallo, hell of a coach uh, to take a, to transition a D two program into uh, what's been a top of the NEC program their first two years in Division one. Um, they were they were two and four to start in their first six games, and Merrimack's now ripped off uh, six straight uh, to be eight and four. And um, you know Bryant, as long as Bryant doesn't get swept, they, they should be able to. Uh, split against the top teams, and, and then they have a couple games against sort of some middle-of-the-pack, uh, lower-echelon teams. But as we, we see and as we talk about every episode, the NEC is so compact, you know, from teams one down through six, eight, one to eight, it's only separated by two and a half games. Yeah. Um, and in the loss column, you're tied with Merrimack and Wagner at the top, and you're you're only one better than two teams below you. So... Um, while this is uncharted territory for Bryant of late, which is a good thing because Jared Grosso has them in the mix yep. for a playoff spot in the NEC tournament, uh, it's just still tough timing coming off of a pause, the way Bryant plays, uh, the way they like to get up and down the court, and then facing the regular season, reigning regular season champion and current f- first place team in the conference. So a big opportunity for them. Uh, it will be awesome to be able to be in the building. Uh, I'm actually off this weekend. We'll be watching from afar, but I know you plan to be there in Smithfield. First time we're allowed at the Chase Athletic Center there, uh, which should be great. Uh, two teams at the top of the conference uh, battling for, for what should be uh, a regular season championship. If Bryant can sweep, I think it's it's safe to say that that you know they'd have an opportunity to not only win, to not only make the playoffs, but to win the, the regular season outright. Um, something else that helps them is having swept Wagner, who's come alive as of late. Yes. And they're 7-4 and four in second place, so you have the tiebreaker there. Uh, so as long as they don't bottom out here, and, and, and if they can, like I said, split against Merrimack uh, and, and a couple other teams in, in the middle of the pack and then maybe sweep a, a bottom-half team toward the end of the year, 
then then they will have a chance to get in. And and we know how great Bryant can be when when all cylinders when, when they're firing on all cylinders. They won six in a row. They won seven of eight during the middle stretch of the season. Uh, actually, check that. They were one, two, three, four, five, eight. Nine, I think they they had gone nine and one during a stretch uh, this year after the Syracuse loss. So uh, they have lost three of four, but uh, th- they've still shown signs of growth and and signs of improvement. And it'll it'll be interesting and it'll be fun uh, just to see this team back out on the court and what hopes to be two really good games against Merrimack. No, I, I think they'd have a realistic chance with the tiebreakers being what they are. If they go sweep, split, split, uh, I think they would have a shot at it. Uh, you're playing five of six at home. Merrimack is their only home and home series of the year. Uh, you're able to sweep the Warriors. You're you're looking at eight and four. You split with LIU, who who is in the middle of the pack right now. Um, you know, but that would leave you a five loss team. You split with Mount St. Mary's, uh, which would be the last series of the year. That'd leave you a six loss team. Uh, even if Merrimack wins out, you're even with them. You have the tiebreaker. At that point, you're just hoping that that Wagner. You know, might drop a couple games. He was a tiebreaker with them, so the math would be in your favor if you're able to win these two games this weekend. Uh, of course, we're assuming that those get played. Uh, we're not certain. We're waiting on an announcement either from Bryant or from the Northeast Conference. Uh, you know, I would assume that would most likely come either today or tomorrow. They're they're not going to wait much longer to decide whether or not they're going to play those games. Um, you know, but I, I, I certainly hope that, that Bryant is able to join us, uh, you know, come back and, and put all three of our men's teams, um, you know, out there uh, on the floor, uh, you know, playing meaningful games here down the stretch. Uh, you know, as we started off this podcast, it, it is certainly more than some of us might have expected, uh, you know, when we got this started five or six months ago, uh, you know, when practices started and, and we started to schedule games and, and whatnot. Um you know, Maury, anything else that uh, you would like to hit on, that you would like to plug uh, before we wrap up here? <sighs> Put me on the spot here. Not really. Uh, I think everything is good. Just, yeah, just, just ready. Like I said at the top, you know, the best six weeks in college hoops is here. Uh, interested to hopefully see we get 68 teams in Indianapolis. Uh, the adjusted schedule, see how that kind of shakes out for the NCAA tournament. But uh, the last couple weeks of the regular season championship week are always fun. Anytime you can have uh, day basketball games is great. You can wake yeah. up and, and catch a game at one. Uh, your day is just infinitely shortened, and, and you have something to look forward to a few hours after you wake up. Uh, and then you can just hop on. You can have a lot of different screens up, whether it's your laptop, whether it's a tablet, whether it's your TV or your phone. Uh, you watch games in all the different conferences. And, and the mid-major tournaments this year, um, because of the COVID pauses and because of uh, inconsistencies and in schedules and playing time and injuries and, and setbacks. I think pretty much every league uh, is going to have some type of upset, some type of team that comes out of nowhere. Uh, and, and we could see a couple in our area, you know, whether that's a Rhode Island or whether that's a Providence uh, or whether that's a Bryant. So uh, while all three teams are, are sort of middling right now, there still is an opportunity to make some noise. And that's all you can ask for, at least from a journalist's perspective, from our perspective. Something competitive, something we can look forward to covering. Uh, when you're covering a cellar dweller, there's not much to look forward to. Right. When you're covering a really good team, it's awesome. It's great. Uh, but some some part of covering a team around 500 makes it fun. Hey, which team is going to show up this night? Can they put it together for 40 straight minutes? Can they play up to X teams, you know, uh, level so uh, all three teams have a chance and that'll be the best part of it you never know what you're going to get 
but really none of none of these three teams uh, should ever get blown out um, the the last couple weeks of the season. And we'll see and we'll see what happens, but it'll be fun. Yeah, in, in the conferences that they're playing in, I think you look at you look ahead to the tournaments, and you know I don't know if there's been a year where seeding has mattered less. Um, you know, in terms of the Big East, the A10, and the NEC, I, I think just getting to the field, being in the field, uh, not having a pause here over the last couple weeks, uh, trying to build some momentum, I, I think that means a lot. Um, you know, I, I would look at. URI and look at Providence and you know knock on wood uh, they've been able to play since the start of November uh, you know without having to go out of practice I, I think that's really important um, you know and I and, and I just think you know this year in a given year you know unless you're drawing Gonzaga or Baylor or Ohio State or, or Michigan you get in the NCAA tournament uh, I mean Gonzaga and Baylor clearly look like the two best teams going into the field um, you know but seeding has it ever mattered less you know when you consider the sample sizes here and, and the fact that some of these teams are going to play 18 games and some are going to play 28, uh, you know, are we going to have a, a realistic representation of, of who is in a certain place? Uh, you know, I, I don't think so. I, I think this year is going to be less so than ever before. Uh, you know, and so you look at, in particular, the Big East tournament. I, I think I saw a tweet Late Tuesday night from Zach Braziller, uh, you know, great college basketball writer at the New York Post, who who said that St. John's and UConn, as it stands right now, uh, would be the four or five seeds in the Big East and and would most likely play a quarterfinal game. Um, you know, I look at the Big East, the the way the games have been played out, and I don't necessarily consider UConn the fifth best team in the Big East. Uh, I I think if you were going to put that. You're going to put that tournament, you're going to put uh, some gambling odds on the board for that tournament. I don't think UConn would be the fifth choice. Um, you know, I, I certainly don't think that uh, the, the guys out in Vegas or, or the folks at, uh, you know, Sportsbet RI would, would put UConn as the fifth choice. And, and so I, I, you know, I, I think of the same thing in the A10. Um, you know, regardless of where some teams finish in the standings. Uh, I'm not going to discount Richmond or St. Louis or, or even Rhode Island. Uh, you know, if Rhode Island is an eight or a nine seed, there's no reason why they can't win a quarterfinal game against the number one seed. They did it two years ago. Um, you know, so I'm I'm really fascinated to see, like you are, uh, how the next two weeks play out, and then as we get into championship week, um, you know, into March, uh, you know, the the best time of the year for college basketball, my favorite time of the year. For sports, uh, you know, because you, you get into college hoops, and the Masters is right around the corner, you get to see those little signs of spring, and, and it starts to get a little warmer, baseball comes in, um, you know, it's just a, a great progression over the next six weeks out of winter, uh, and, and into something to look forward to. And the best theme song in all of sports. Don't tell me one shining moment. <laughs> Don't tell me that. No, the CBS theme song for college basketball, March Madness. Oh, all right, thank goodness. I, sometimes I listen to that sort of like mid mid to late February, getting ready for the day. Oh, that's great. Got to love it. Good for you. Gets the juices going. No, it really does. It really does. Uh, so with that, folks, we, we thank you for tuning in. Uh, we hope everyone's staying healthy, staying safe. Mask up, wash your hands, uh, and enjoy the games. Thank you.